The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I think one of the worst and tragic messages that comes out of this peace agreement is that starvation works, that as a weapon of war, the infliction of mass hunger is merciless and effective. It may be slow, it may take months or years, but it is relentless and it does its job. And it's silent. It's something that if you can suppress information about it happening, the world will not object. And it's possible to co-opt those who are mandated to prevent hunger, UN humanitarian agencies and international governments. It's possible to co-opt them into silence, even collusion in this crime, if you wish to do so. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 22nd, 2022. Earlier this month, officials from the government of Ethiopia and representatives from the Tigray People's Liberation Front agreed to halt the two-year conflict that has been rife with accusations of ethnic cleansing, sexual violence, and famine as a weapon of war. To discuss the current state of the conflict and the prospect of peace, I sat down with Alex Duvall, Executive Director of the World Peace Foundation, and a research professor at Tufts University's Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. A longtime expert on the Horn of Africa, Duvall co-edited the book Accountability for Mass Starvation, Testing the Limits of the Law, which was published in August. We discussed the terms of the recent truce agreements, the irony of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's Nobel Peace Prize, and the options for accountability for forced starvation and other crimes committed by both sides. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 22nd. Alex Duvall on the conflict in Ethiopia in Tigray. Now, for lawfare listeners who may have seen headlines on Ethiopia and Tigray, but aren't quite caught up to speed with how the the conflict started, the current status, could you just give a brief overview of, you know, when the hostilities broke out, who the parties involved are, and what they're fighting for? So the conflict erupted almost exactly two years ago. It began as a political dispute between the recently uh, elevated Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, who was presented himself very much as a, as a young, dynamic, energetic reformer, and the leadership of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which was from, as you would expect, from the Tigray region in the north of Ethiopia, 
um, but most significantly had been the, the vanguard of ruling the country for the previous 27 or so years. The other element in this conflict, this dispute, was neighboring Eritrea. There was a long-running, deep and bitter grudge between the TPLF leadership and the president of Eritrea, Isaias Afawoki. And while the dispute between the TPLF and Prime Minister Abiy was primarily political, the dispute between Tigray and Eritrea was far deeper, and, and the Eritrean leader essentially wanted to crush Tigray and destroy its leadership and and render Tigray region as a whole destitute and unable ever to rise again. And I think some listeners might recall that Abi Ahmed won the Nobel Peace Prize, and yet uh, he went to war. So could you speak a bit more about him uh, in that transition from you know Nobel Peace Prize winner to now you know engaged in conflict? The Nobel Peace Prize is profoundly ironic because the main reason he won that was that there had been uh, a war between Ethiopia and Eritrea some 22 years ago. And that had ended in a truce and an armed standoff that lasted over the intervening decades with the forces mobilized along the border and the two countries trying to destabilize and undermine each other. But Ethiopia had developed into a, a relatively prosperous economy. It was one of the fastest growing economies in the world, but had not liberalized. It was still a fairly authoritarian system. Eritrea had become a total, totally totalitarian system, totally closed, no, no constitution, no rule of law, no media, no political parties. The only functioning institution was really the, the army and security services. And Abiy sort of broke the Cold War. He flew to Asmara and embraced President Isaias and said, let's make peace. Now, the content of that peace agreement was never made public. Normally, one would expect in Africa a peace agreement to have provisions for democratization, transparency, openness, monitoring, none of that. There was obviously some sort of secret pact between the two. Nonetheless, it got uh, Abiy the, the Nobel Peace Prize, but what we subsequently learned was that the pact was really a military pact against Tigray. So ironically, tragically, this this peace deal was actually the recipe for a new war. Now we'll go from one peace deal to another, uh, peace negotiations rather. As you well know, earlier this month, I believe there were two agreements signed uh, between the hostile parties uh, what were the what was the context in which the parties came to the table? Who was at the table, uh, and what's in these agreements? So the context was that there were two years of extremely bitter war, and the 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 military equation swung one way and the next, um, and then to the other extreme, and then back. But the the, the core over the last year has been that Tigray region was encircled and blockaded to the north by Eritrea, to the south by the Ethiopian federal forces. And a, it was blockaded in that no information was really allowed out. And no journalists went in. The last international journalist to be there was in June of 2021. Humanitarian agencies were not allowed to collect or transmit information. But most importantly, no services were allowed and, and almost no food was allowed in. Only about 15% of what the World Food Programme estimated was 
the required ration was permitted in. So a starvation siege was imposed. Some academics at the, in Belgium have estimated that of Tigray's pre-war population of six and a half million, somewhere between 383,000 and, and 800,000, so a median figure of about 600,000, perished of starvation and disease over these two years. That's a, an appalling death toll. There was no sign of this, this weapon uh, letting up. And then in August, um, fighting uh, resumed again, and the Eritrean, joint Eritrean and Ethiopian forces took the offensive, and over 70 days had day and night fighting. And the level of casualties in this war are absolutely mind-blowing. The uh, Ethiopian chief of staff remarked, made an offhand remark um, last week that his army in those uh, less than two months of fighting had lost 136,000 dead. And that does not include the militia casualties, the Eritrean casualties, or the casualties on the other side. The, the overall death toll from this war, from the battlefield and from starvation, is likely to be well in excess of one million. Now, what really happened, therefore, was that um, after 70 days of, of this onslaught, the Tigrayans, who had been surrounded, isolated, blockade, their material means for fighting were just running out. They were firing off all their bullets, killing thousands and thousands of these wretched conscripts who were ordered to rush their lines. But they could no longer defend their population centers. And uh, more than a million villagers were being displaced, driven off their farms, um, their equipment, their, their, everything they had was being, being looted. And essentially the Tigrayan leadership decided, well, we have to sue for peace, not because we've lost on the battlefield, but because starvation is an appallingly effective weapon of war and our people are dying in such numbers that we can no longer withstand. So two rounds of talks were held. The first was in Pretoria in South Africa, um, convened by the African Union, in which the, the Tigrayans essentially said, we will forsake our political agenda simply in order to have a ceasefire and getting food to our people. And the second round was a discussion among the military commanders on both sides as to how they would actually implement the security provisions of the deal. During this entire process, the negotiations have been between uh, the Tigray leadership, TPLF, and the federal government. Um, Eritrea is conspicuous by its absence from the peace talks, although its army is actually present on the ground in, in Tigray. Thanks for giving us a sense of the scale of death, I mean, not only on the battlefield, but also among the civilian population. Uh, and I definitely want to get into starvation as a tool of war, and then also, you know, what hopes of accountability we can hope for after that. But uh, first, I want to drill down a little bit on the agreements. A recent piece that you had in Responsible Statecraft sort of made the point that, you know, at first blush, the terms of the agreement might seem favorable for Addis Ababa. But I think you make the point that it's, you know, it's not that clear. Could you talk about the favorability of terms in terms of the parties? The overall deal, the main text that was signed in, in Pretoria, is highly favorable to the government. It reestablishes federal authority over Tigray as a whole. 
it says that the Tigrayan forces ought to be demobilized and disarmed. It reestablishes sort of constitutional order and, and, and the rule of law. And it has very weak provisions for protection of civilians, monitoring, etc. It's a little bit more complicated than that, because one of the ironies of this war is that the so-called rebels, the Tigrayans, were actually the ones fighting to uphold the constitution, whereas Prime Minister Abiy wanted to revise it. He wanted to change the federal order to a more unitarist order. So when the the, the, the agreement talks about upholding the rule of law and the constitution, actually, uh, that's a bit double-edged, because there are many of... Prime Minister Abiy's allies, who will not be happy with that. They will have to seize territory that was unconstitutionally annexed, seized from Tigray, and they will have to accept that the, the federal constitution, for now at least, is in place. The, the biggest um, concession that the Tigrayans appeared to make in Tigray was on the issue of disarmament. Now, that has been clarified in the the subsequent uh, negotiations and the declaration coming out of Nairobi in two important respects. First of all, it makes it very clear that nothing will happen on any sort of disarmament front until foreign forces, which means Eritrea, withdraws. And secondly, that the entire process is subject to a joint committee of the the military commanders of the the national forces and the the Tigray forces. And the situation on the ground is that the Tigrayan forces are not defeated. And should the Eritreans withdraw, they will actually be the the dominant military partner. So the, the deal in practice is likely to mean something more akin to the redesignation of the Tigrayan army as a special military force or, or militia of the Tigrayan regional government rather than, than being actually demobilized and disarmed. And then I think one f- final question on, on the aspect of the agreements. What has been the role or not of international actors, namely, I think, the usual suspects of the AU, the UN, the EU, and then, of course, the United States? Well, the the history, the backstory to this is quite interesting and important. The US convened a series of discrete, in fact, secret talks between the parties during the early part of this year, in which they failed to reach agreement. They thought they had agreements, but um, each time the federal government, Abiy, reneged on its part of the agreement. And because the agreement was secret and because the American were being quite accommodating towards Abbey, he paid no penalty. So the US was there in the background, uh, but it didn't really play an active role in, in the talks. What's more striking is that the African Union, which has over the last 20 years convened many, many peace negotiations, it's always done that in close collaboration with the UN, including technical experts from the UN Mediation Support Unit, in close uh, cooperation, often usually with the European Union, which is its major funder. It kept all of these out. There there, there were no external technical experts uh, involved. There were also very little in the way of international diplomatic um, observers there. And this is going to become a major problem because the, the monitoring of it really will require some transparency, some gr- a greater level of international involvement, and above all, 
the financing, not only of the humanitarian program, but also of all the reconstruction and rehabilitation and the, and the financial bailout of Ethiopia, which is bankrupt, that has to come from uh, international partners. And if they're not part of the agreement, um, they may not be quite as hasty in coming forward with the support that is needed. Now, as we begin to approach questions on culpability and then hopefully accountability uh, with some of the perhaps crimes against humanity or war crimes that took place, namely starvation as a tool of war, I want to go back to a point you made earlier or hinted at uh, in which uh, the Tigrayan forces, as they began to pull off some, I think, surprising military victories, it came at a cost of, of leaving maybe population centers defenseless. Can you talk a bit about that gamble and how it may have eased Ethiopian forces to to blockade these cities? Well, essentially, what the, the war had an enormous back and forth. So, in the very early days of the war, the Ethiopian and Eritrean, the Ethiopian federal forces and the Eritreans and the militia from next door Amhara occupied all of Tigray essentially. And during uh, a period of, of, of about eight months, they systematically looted and pillaged the, the region, destroying foodstuffs, medicine, shelter, water supplies, massive amounts of rape, and, and, and so on, and also many massacres. The Tigrayans organized guerrilla resistance. They, they, they controlled the region. They then came back and controlled the region in June of last year. And since then, until um, until a few weeks ago, they were almost in, in control of almost all the region and its population centers. But they were not able to sustain a sort of conventional defense. Their defensive lines got worn down by these relentless attacks by, by the Eritreans and Ethiopians at, at this enormous human cost. And that calculation essentially became on, on the two sides, who would flinch first? Would the level of casualties being suffered by these massed ranks of Ethiopian conscripts, would that break the Ethiopian army? Or would the, the starvation and mass displacement and, and, and general distress of the Tigrayan population break the will of the Tigrayan leadership? And the Tigrayan leadership were the ones who who decided to submit first. They couldn't bear the um, the human cost. They could have continued mobile or guerrilla warfare. They could have abandoned the population centers and seen the types of of mass violations that occurred in 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 the previous phase of the war when the Eritreans and Ethiopians occupied the cities. They could have seen those violations recur. But they, they decided that that human price was, was, was too high a cost to pay. So they would, they would not continue the war and, and, and sue for peace. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan 
when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. I think now is a good moment to step back and ask how we know what we know. Um, I think an important aspect of, of the search for accountability is documentation. I'm curious, first of all, who has been documenting the suffering that's happening? Um, I know, for example, that former ICC prosecutor Fatou Bensouda led a fact-finding mission of sorts. And then how do we know what we know, especially in the context of the information blackout that you mentioned earlier? There have been a number of different inquiries. There were, in fact, the, the State Department did an investigation into uh, ethnic cleansing in the western part of Tigray into the question of whether it constituted genocide, and that was never published. And one assumes the reason why it wasn't published was that it would have been inconvenient to have a, a, a genocide finding for uh, purposes of U.S. policy. There was a joint investigation by the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission with the Ethiopian Commission, which is a government body in the league. And of course, that cast doubt on, on its um, impartiality. A number of investigations by um, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Norwegian Refugee Council, and, and, and a number of others. Most importantly, human rights experts under the, the UN submitted a, a report uh, in, in September. And the significance of this report is that it found that all sides had committed abuses that most likely uh, amounted to war crimes, including the Tigrayan forces, especially when they were operating outside Tigray in neighboring Amhara region. But it said two important things. One was that the only one side, only one party, that is the, the federal government and, and its Eritrean ally, were responsible for what appeared to be crimes against humanity, widespread and systematic crimes. And indeed, um, looking at the, at the pattern of these crimes and the, the, the statements coming out of both governments, um, including some extraordinarily sort of hateful rhetoric, the implication is that committing crimes against the population was not a byproduct of the war, but was the purpose of the war. It really might well have been a, a overtly genocidal uh, campaign. And the other point they made is that only one side, that is the federal side and the Eritreans, had committed the, the war crime of starvation through um, destruction of objects indispensable to the survival of the civilian population on a very large and systematic scale, and besieging Tigray and preventing the, the flow of essential humanitarian relief. Now, given uh, these findings, these very, I would say, credible actors and their estimations of, of what occurred, uh, what options are there for accountability and justice? And I think, you know, you can take this question at several levels, domestically in Ethiopia, at the level of, of the African Union, uh, and then also internationally. Domestically, the the Ethiopian penal code is pretty strong on this. It's pretty strong on, 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 on its provisions prohibiting war crimes, including starvation crimes. And the Ethiopian, the previous Ethiopian government, the one in which um, the, the TPLF was a lead actor back in the 1990s, did have the office of a special prosecutor to, to investigate war crimes. 
and crimes of genocide. Uh, I think it's very unlikely that the domestic political system will actually rigorously pursue these cases. There is a, a provision in the uh, agreement signed in Pretoria for accountability under the federal government, but I think there is really no appetite for it. It makes reference to the, the, the African principles for transitional justice, which are broadly positive and encouraging, but they focus very much on, on apologies and truth and reconciliation rather than on criminal accountability. So I think within Ethiopia and within the African system, I think it's unlikely that we'll see much accountability. And I should add that the African Union Commission headquarters is located in Addis Ababa and has aligned itself very closely with its host country, um, Ethiopia. By the way, actually, there's a, there's a uh, rather rich irony here, which is that the AU Commission is located on the very site of the former central prison of Ethiopia, the site of massacres and mass torture under the previous military regime. The prison was known as Alam Bakanya, which means farewell to the world. And it was demolished about 20 years ago, and the African Union headquarters was built on the site. And there is a very small memorial to those who perished there or, or, and who lived many years of miserable lives on that site, but very little official African Union recognition of the significance of the place where its offices are and where its um, um, leaders meet, the fact that it is a, it's a site you know, that is, has a deep human rights significance in, in, in Ethiopia. At an international level, of course, one would expect that arising out of the peace agreement, Ethiopia and, and, and many other countries would not support further UN inquiries uh, going forward. They will basically say that these have been superseded by the provisions of this, um, this peace agreement and they'll do their best to, to close them down. But I don't think this should deter, um, in fact, I would be determined that it shouldn't deter independent human rights investigators, um, activists, lawyers, other governments, the UN, etc., and indeed the ICC, from, from pursuing uh, accountability in various forms. Now, speaking of history or recent history, I would say, I think observers or people familiar with the Horn of Africa might think this sounds woefully familiar. Could you speak about the, the transitional justice efforts that occurred in Ethiopia just some 30 years ago and, and maybe their, their valence to today? After the, the, the TPLF-led coalition overthrew that military government, they established the office of a special prosecutor and they uh, actually captured very large numbers of the senior military and political officials of the previous regime and, and kept them in detention. There weren't any, any, any reprisals and they brought them to court. And quite a few were prosecuted and, 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 and convicted. And some served their sentences, some having served their sentences were very unapologetic. One of the um, crimes that they considered bringing to court was the crime of starvation because the, the great Ethiopian famine of 1984-85, made famous by Bob Geldof and Live Aid, involved the, explicitly involved the, the use of food as a weapon by the then government. 
sadly, I think there was a missed opportunity for prosecuting for starvation crimes in, in that uh, tribunal. And the reason really was that the tribunal was overworked. It was very easy for them to document crimes of, of torture and execution in the urban centers because there were meticulous records kept by the, pre the administration that had carried out these atrocities and because the the uh, survivors and the and the relatives of the victims were, were well organized in lobbying for justice and the trials went on for a number of years and the prosecutor simply lost enthusiasm and energy for pursuing what was a lower profile less salient cases such as starvation by the way we saw a, a, a similar very similar phenomenon in, in the extraordinary um, court for for Cambodia, where uh, prosecutions for crimes against humanity were brought against senior Khmer Rouge leaders, but no starvation charges were included. Again, because it was it was easier to obtain convictions for murder and torture than it was for, than they assumed it was for starvation. Do those trials and other efforts at justice hold lessons for today's negotiations or the prospects of of accountability, or are the parties likely hamstrung, you know, by the same same things as, as the past? I don't see much enthusiasm for uh, at the senior level for these types of, of 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 trials and prosecutions. I think that that the key lesson that would be learned from um, what happened in the nineteen nineties is that the 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 importance of accountability and the importance of truth-telling was not socialized in society as a whole. So it was very disturbing to see the explosion of hate speech under Prime Minister Abiy's government in the lead-up to this war and during the war, and the extent to which um, voices from the past were saying that the, the previous war against the Tigrayans should have been prosecuted with less mercy and more vigor. And so their lesson wasn't one of reconciliation. It was one of, of settling past scores. And I think that the, the failure of that transitional justice mechanism to achieve social reconciliation and harmony and move on was, is, is, is quite striking and disturbing. So we have these medium and long-term efforts at accountability and justice, but of course we have immediate short-term needs of people for food, shelter, etc. Uh, what are humanitarian agencies to do right now? You know, namely, UN agencies like the World Food Program or other donors like USAID. Uh, what's their immediate role right now? Well, one of the, the in, in my view, not only tragic, but deeply deplorable aspects to the humanitarian performance in Tigray over the last um, year, year and a half, has been that they have remained silent about the extent to which starvation has been used as a crime. Now, I readily concede that humanitarian agencies are in a dilemma here. If the price of you being present on the ground and feeding people is that you have to acquiesce in the, the narrative of those who are inflicting this suffering on them, you have to you know, not report on what you're saying, not criticize them. That, that's, a, that's a real dilemma. But if, you're, if the situation is you're actually not even achieving the bare minimum 
of delivering life-saving rations, life-saving medicine and so on, where you have hospitals that don't even have aspirins, don't even have basic insulin supplies, where less than 15% of minimum rations are being delivered. What are you gaining by remaining silent? And why is it that the World Food Programme, whenever its food warehouses were looted by Ethiopian and Eritrean forces, remain silent. It's quite shocking because I think that what, what that did was it encouraged the Ethiopian government to think that it could get away with the use of humanitarian assistance as a, as a political tool and, and hunger as a weapon. So one of the things that we saw, which I think was really disturbing in the last two weeks, was the the, the rationale of the Pretoria Agreement was the, the Tigrayans conceded their political demands in return for getting a ceasefire and humanitarian relief. Well, they got an end to the shooting. But then what the Ethiopian government did was it went against the spirit and indeed the letter of the agreement and, and said, we will only allow humanitarian aid to go to places we control or it will only go when we are allowed to re-establish our administration in other parts of Tigray. And that was not the understanding. It was not the agreement. And even those who are more sympathetic to the Ethiopian government then called them out on it in the Nairobi talks. But even now, today is what the, the 18th, so that is 16 days after that agreement was signed, barely a trickle, a handful of trucks of of. of essential assistance have arrived in the Tigrayan capital, Mekele. And this can't be for logistical reasons. It, it can't be because there is no guarantee on security, because the, the, the guarantees are all there. It is entirely because the Ethiopian government continues to put bureaucratic obstacles in the way, and the international aid donors, beginning with the UN, are simply not standing up to, um, to that government and insisting that humanitarian obligations are, are, are fulfilled. And it's not only a, a question of, of basic rights, it's also a question of, of political importance, because if aid is not provided, the rationale for the, the Tigrayans, who, who are undefeated on the battlefield, the rationale for them to stick to this agreement will, will disappear. If starvation continues, why would they agree to yield when they're not getting anything for their people in return. For decades now, I think a common refrain in the international community has been never again. Um, you know, we've seen new norms come about, like the responsibility to protect. The United States has adopted an atrocities prevention toolkit, you know, based on the efforts of Samantha Power and others. And yet we have this situation in Ethiopia where atrocities have occurred. What can we make of these I think, well-intentioned efforts and their ability or not to, to prevent atrocities. And let me add one more to the list, which is that um, four and a half years ago, the UN Security Council adopted a resolution 2417 on armed conflict and hunger, requiring the UN Secretary General to report swiftly to the Security Council if armed conflict was likely to cause uh, widespread food insecurity, and noting that the use of hunger as a weapon of war could be a war crime. So, a, a very specific tool aimed at preventing um, starvation in, in, in wartime. And what we've seen is that none of these really seem to prevail in, in the face of political expediency. I mean, the, 
the major problem with the, the atrocities prevention toolkit is that it, it, it specifies that it's a, an important strategic aim for the US government to prevent this, these kinds of atrocities occurring. But whenever a particular situation arises today, as in the past, as in those historic situations that were criticized by quite justifiably so, quite rightly so, by Samantha Power in her in, in her well-known book, A Problem from Hell, situations like Rwanda, like 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 Bosnia Herzegovina. When there's a, a political expedience that overrules and is a higher priority than than the imperative of preventing atrocities. Usually, it, it, it's that political calculus that wins out. And I think we see that quite clearly in the case of, of Ethiopia and, and, and Tigray over the last couple of years. We see it in the case of the UN and, and it's the obligations of the UN Secretary General under that resolution 2417 on armed conflict and hunger. He is required to report swiftly to the Security Council. Um, his first report on this topic with Ethiopia up there occurred 22 months after the conflict erupted and the first warnings of, 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 of famine were sounded. There's a, a particular tendency, very marked among policymakers and the UN, that they prefer to talk about logistical and funding constraints on alleviating famine rather than on the criminal acts that cause famine. They rather talk about mercy uh, than about justice. They would rather encourage uh, states and belligerents to adhere to international humanitarian law than they would threaten them with punishment under international criminal law. I think one of the tragic, worse than tragic messages that comes out of this peace agreement is that starvation works, that as a weapon of war, the infliction of mass hunger is merciless and effective. It may be slow, it may take months or years, but it is relentless and it does its job. And it's silent. It's something that if you can suppress information about it happening, the world will not object. And it's possible to co-opt those who are mandated to prevent hunger, UN humanitarian agencies, um, international governments. It's possible to co-opt them into silence, even collusion in this crime, if you wish to do so. So if we want to see an end to the use of starvation as this terribly efficient weapon of war, we need to up our game. We need to focus our public diplomacy, our advocacy, and our legal efforts on, on exposing and prohibiting this crime of starvation. Alex Duvall, thank you so much for taking the time. You're very welcome. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other offerings, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. 
The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.